0: The morning started with a visit to the Wittgenstein House, and now I'm back in the center of Vienna at Café d'Iglas, a very old and revered Viennese café, located just a few steps behind St. Stephen's Cathedral in the very center of the city. Wittgenstein, of course, has been quite interesting, not just for me, but for analytic philosophers. Since he published his famous book, The Tractatus, shortly after the First World War, he actually then became a school teacher in Austria for a year or two outside of Vienna and then he had some complications. His personality and the personality of 10-year-old children in Vienna didn't quite fit together too well, so he left his job as a school teacher but he was engaged by his sister Margarete to design a house for her and her American husband. He designed a very austere and spare house that looks more like a series of different boxes piled on top of each other, which set a certain kind of architectural movement in place. He was especially concerned with things like the windows, the door handles. And he was a pretty stern taskmaster. The people who had to work and implement his design were not especially happy with it. I think that even his sister who commissioned it was not especially happy with it because it was enormously expensive. As a house, it made a much better museum than a place to live. So in the end, this house was almost on the edge of being demolished after the Second World War when the Monument Society in Austria stepped in, said we have to preserve this property, and it was then later bought by the Bulgarian embassy to be a culture center, and that's how it stands today. I'd never been to this house before in more than 40 years in Vienna, so I thought it was time to take a look. I found it certainly interesting as an architectural work It's not the kind of place that I would like to live, that's for sure. It vaguely reminded me of being inside a prison rather than a house, but it was not without interest. And, of course, I've harbored an interest in Wittgenstein personally since a book that I wrote in 1998 called The Cambridge Quintet. He was one of the main characters. This book is an account of a hypothetical dinner party conversation between five great thinkers of that era... Conversation took place in Christ College in Cambridge. That's why it's the Cambridge Quintet. They were discussing the issue of thinking machines. Could a machine think just like you and me? The participants of the dinner were the philosopher Wittgenstein, the computer scientist Alan Turing, the biologist J. B. S. Haldane, a geneticist really, and the quantum physicist Erwin Schrödinger. The host of the dinner was the British polymath C.P. Snow, who was a fellow of Christ College in Cambridge. This party was set in about 1950, just at the time when Alan Turing had published his famous paper on computing machinery and intelligence. And the debate around the table was, could we ever build a machine that could think? Not just get the same results as humans, but get them in exactly the same way that humans do. I think to this day, the jury is still out on that question, especially the second part about getting them in the same way because I don't think anybody really knows exactly how the humans get them. So how could you ever test whether a machine is doing it? But the big AI movement now is more focused on getting the same results however you can get them. We're going to discuss the issue of minding the complexity gap, which will really be a conversation about how to simplify something down to its essential elements. Einstein said at one time, a theory should be as simple as possible but not simpler. We have to start with a very big complex system, the human body or national economies or whatever, and try and identify what are the essential elements there that make it complex and in some sense try and throw away the other parts that are just peripheral to generating the complexity. So we'll now go back to my flat, which luckily is only a few hundred meters from here, and take up that question. talk about minding the complexity gap. Uh, Let me say a word or two about complexity as a system's property. A lot of people ask me, they say, well, how do you measure the complexity of a system? How can you say the human body is more complex than a tea kettle or something of that kind? This question is not as simple as one might imagine. When I worked at the Santa Fe Institute some years ago, There was a very bright young postdoc there named Seth Lloyd, who's now a very famous professor at MIT in quantum computing. But at the time I met him, he was doing a literature investigation of the term complexity and how it had been used seriously in the scientific literature in different contexts for different kinds of problems and questions, in particular, what were the working definitions that the authors used for how they measured the complexity of the system. He went through a voluminous literature and came up with, at the time, 31 different definitions of complexity, each one of which had been proposed by some reputable researcher for use in some particular kind of question. Seth put together an article on this mimicking the Baskin-Robin ice cream chain, he called his article 31 Flavors of Complexity. So what this means is that there's no uniform agreement in the scientific community as to exactly what the term complexity means. It has to do with new properties that emerge in the system that you can't see by looking at individual pieces of a system. For example, imagine you take some hydrogen and some oxygen. Both of them in their normal state are gases, and they're pretty flammable. If you put a match to them, uh, watch out. But if you put them together into a new system, the interaction creates a new compound called water, H2O. It's not a gas, and if you put a match to it, it puts the match out. It doesn't explode. So all sorts of new properties emerge from these basic components. If you take nitric acid and glycerin and put them together, you can take a bottle of each and shake it as long as you want, and nothing interesting would happen. But watch out if you put them together, because they need a very unstable compound called nitroglycerin. If you shake it even a little bit, uh, you may not be long for this world. So why is having a measure of complexity important? It's important for my work in the following way. If you take two independent systems, think about the financial services system and the components that make it up, two of the major components are the financial services sector and the regulators. Now, each of those are independent systems what I discovered is each of them has their own level of complexity and it's always changing dynamically in time. It gets bigger, it gets smaller, whatever. What's really important is not so much the complexity level of each individual system. What's important is the difference in complexity between one system and the other because they're in interaction, and you have one system that's a higher complexity system than the other one, and that means there's a gap, the difference in complexity. That's what's important, not the absolute complexity. If that gap becomes large, then you get stresses that build up between those systems. If the gap is relatively small, then the systems are in a reasonable level of harmony, and you don't get stresses like in everyday life between human beings, for example. But as time goes on, you necessarily get gaps because these complexity levels are changing, shifting all the time. And what happens is that you get a crash, financial crash. To make use of some of the ideas that I've been exploring recently, you need to have an agreed-upon way of characterizing the complexity of the interacting systems and be able to use it to measure that gap. So mind the gap, mind the complexity gap. This is why I'm very interested in in any given case, which measure of complexity seems to be the most suitable one to use for that situation. Now, in a book that I wrote a couple of years ago called uh, X-Events, I took a very simple version of how to measure complexity because it's easy to understand and it actually works reasonably well in many cases, is to say the complexity of a system is equal to the number of independent actions that that system can take at a given moment. Of course, as time changes, maybe the number of actions that can be taken get bigger or get smaller, Dynamic. It coheres reasonably well with intuition. You think about somebody, let's say take some very wealthy person, at any given moment that person has a lot more different and independent actions that he or she can take as opposed to somebody who's very poor. My measure would say that rich person has much higher complexity than the poor one. This is also the basis for a lot of complaints that we hear nowadays about income inequality. It means that those high-complexity people are dominating the social agendas in most Western countries. So that's the idea of complexity and complexity gaps. I originally started thinking about these notions. Some years ago, actually, after I read a book by an American archaeologist named Joseph Tainter, it's called The Collapse of Complex Societies. The ambulances, police. Now they're disappearing. So, in his book, Collapse of Complex Societies, Tainter said, Well, we know that there are a large number of ancient civilizations, societies, and so on that used to be here, and they're not here anymore, they're gone roman empire for example or egyptians so he posed the question he said well in each of those cases was there some fundamentally different reason why the society collapsed or was there a common factor that he could point to and say that this was the factor that led to these collapses he came to the conclusion that there was a common factor And that common factor is what he called complexity overload. It's very simple to understand. He noted that every society faces problems. Things happen, for example, when uh, the World Trade Center towers were brought down in 2001 in New York by those airplanes that crashed into them. All of a sudden, the American government had a problem. Terrorism on U.S. soil. The way that they addressed this problem. They created a new agency whose job was to solve that problem. It even has a name, the Department of Homeland Security. Well, tainer discovered the same phenomena at work in ancient societies also. Problems came in. The society creates a level of structure whose job is to address that problem, and fine. But new problems are always appearing. And if each time one appears, you create a new level of structure to deal with it. At some point, you reach the stage where all of the resources of the society are being consumed, maintaining the current structures. There's no resources left for the next problem. So what do they do? What happens when the next problem comes in the door? Well, what happens is either the problem is ignored Or what might even be worse, in many cases, the problem is given over to some part of the system that was created to deal with an entirely different kind of problem. And so they make a mess of it. These new problems accumulate. The complexity of the system continues to grow until at some point complexity overload sets in and the whole structure falls off the edge, collapses. That's essentially Tainter's argument. In my book, X Events, I only slightly updated that argument because he was talking only about a single system. I said, well, what about if you have more than one system and they're in interaction with each other? This is where the idea of complexity gap came from. You still get tensions because of too much complexity in one part or too little complexity in the other part. Either you have to bring up the complexity of the low one or reduce the complexity of the big one to get the gap back into a reasonable, harmonious balance. If you don't do that, then you're on the way to trouble. So complexity overload, complexity gaps, if you like, are one of the two main drivers of the what I call the landscape of events. The landscape of events you could think of as being some kind of rugged landscape of plateaus and mountaintops and valleys and hills and so on that constitutes the context within which any event takes place an event being a change of state in the system from its current state. The context specifies all the possible places you might go next that are not logically excluded. Which one you actually get is determined by a random trigger that comes in and nudges you and moves you someplace in in this landscape. So It picks out from the possible events what you actually get. The second main driver of this landscape is something that's less system-theoretic and more psychological. It's about mass psychology, group psychology. It has to do with what I call the social mood. It is the beliefs that a group or a population holds about its future on all timescales. The beliefs can be either They're optimistic about the future. They think tomorrow's going to be better than today. Or they're pessimistic. They think tomorrow's going to be worse. They're fearing the future rather than welcoming it. Of course, when you say, what's the social mood about how do you feel about the future? The right response is to say, which future? Do you mean, how do I feel about tomorrow? How do I feel about next month? How do I feel about next year? Because you may well give completely different answers in each case. There's a time scale associated with this. So the social mood strongly biases the character of the type of events that you can typically expect to see. If the mood is positive, and people are optimistic about the future, the types of events that uh, usually appear are kind of upbeat type events, joining, welcoming, globalizing. If they're pessimistic, then the polarity is just the opposite. You get events that instead of globalizing, they're localizing. Instead of welcoming, they're rejecting. Instead of being happy, they're sad. Those two factors taken together at any given moment, complexity gaps and social mood, determine where you are in the landscape. If you're on a mountain peak, then the the yellow light is flashing. You better start paying attention because it won't take much to push you off into a deep valley. If you're on a flat plateau, the green light is on, and it's business as usual. So this is the story about complexity gaps, mind the complexity gap. In the next episode, we'll talk about when one of these extreme events actually does happen, how can you be a survivor and maybe even a beneficiary of that event, staying alive.